The gospel narratives do not paint a very positive picture of Peter, the Galilean fisherman. In fact, if the New Testament ended with the gospels, it is doubtful that there would be a St. Peter's Basilica, doubtful Peter would have been named the first pope, and doubtful we would speak of St. Peter at the pearly gates. About the only place we might find his name would be right between Judas and Brutus in a book entitled History's Greatest Losers and Traitors, which is interesting to consider. Apart from Jesus, no one is mentioned more in the New Testament than Peter. No one, uh, no other person speaks as often nor is spoken to as often. No disciple is reproved as often, and no one but Peter is so presumptuous as to, pre- uh, to uh, reprove the Lord. No other disciple so boldly confesses Christ and so boldly denies him. No one was so praised by Jesus, and no one else was called Satan by Jesus. Peter is a bundle of contradictions, inconsistencies, and failures all rolled into one person. His biggest problem, which I understand, seems to be his mouth. He was always opening it, always interrupting, continually asking questions, frequently giving advice, sometimes even commands. And most of the time, he didn't know what he was talking about. Examples. Remember the transfiguration? Lord, it is good for us to have been here. Let us build three tents for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. And Luke records, he didn't know what he was saying. And this time, God himself told Peter, be quiet. The contradictions, the failures never seem to end for this guy. Even as you get to the end of Jesus' ministry, think about it, hanging out with Jesus for three years, being taught by Jesus, being called first among the disciples, Peter seemed to get worse rather than better. Consider, for example, uh, last Thursday, a few days ago, we call it Monday Thursday, the night Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers for 30 pieces of silver. The Last Supper, Jesus was going to teach on servanthood. He took a towel and a a bowl of water to wash the disciples' feet. But when he came to Peter, Peter said, no way, Lord, not me, to which Jesus responded, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. (laughs) Okay, then give me a bath. This is not in the text, but I am convinced that at this point, Jesus popped Peter with a towel. (laughs) Will you be quiet? You don't know what you're saying. Later that evening, Jesus predicted all his followers would be scattered for fear of their lives. Peter, in his typical speak now, think later fashion, boasted he would never flee. Lord, I will follow you even if everyone else, throwing the rest of the disciples under the bus, even if everyone else deserts, I will follow you even to death. Peter, you do not know what you're saying. Satan has desired to have you, to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Well, To his credit, Peter did evidence some bravado in the garden by pulling a sword or maybe a kitchen knife uh, on the crowd that came to take Jesus. But his bravery and commitment soon melted and he fled with the others just as Jesus had predicted. In fact, Jesus had told Peter something else earlier that night. Not only will you desert me, you will deny me three times before the morning light. 
And we find when Jesus was taken after fleeing, Peter followed the crowd at a distance to the courtyard of the high priest, the house of Caiaphas. You know the story well. While sitting there, trying to remain as inconspicuous as possible, a servant girl seemed to recognize him. You too were with Jesus of Galilee, but Peter denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. No, Peter, you're the one that doesn't know what you're talking about. Strike one. A little later, another girl recognized him. Perhaps she remembered seeing him as he spread palm leaves or his coats before Jesus just a few days before. She too said, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. This time, Peter denied it with an oath. I swear to you, scouts honor, I don't know the man. Strike two. Peter. A little while later, Peter is talking in his Galilean brogue. Someone said to him, surely you are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. This time, Peter started swearing, profanely, cursing. I don't know the man, strike three. We are told that immediately a rooster crowed and Jesus, who was in the courtyard, turned to look at Peter. And as they made eye contact, Peter remembered the words of Jesus earlier that evening and he went outside and wept bitterly. This, this leader, the first among the disciples, not very impressive, was he? He was a broken man, a failure, and this is pretty much where the gospel, the gospel narrative leave him. In fact, after Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus appeared to many over a period of 40 days, giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. On one of those occasions, the very last chapter of the very last gospel, John chapter 21, Peter actually quit deserted again and returned to his life of fishing for fish. Jesus appeared to him on the shore, rebuked him, called him in, asked him three times to correspond to the three denials. Peter, do you love me? You said you did. You love me more than these? More than these what? More than these, this, this fish, this boat, this net, than these disciples? You said you did. Jesus rebukes him and restores him once again to the task of fishing for men. And so the fourth gospel ends. And it is highly questionable at this point that Peter will ever amount to anything. He's done. We leave Peter in the gospels. We wonder if he'll ever be effective. He seems destined for shameful Failure. You ever feel that way? Because you understand that days later, on the day of Pentecost, something happened. On that day, the promise of the Father was fulfilled, the Holy Spirit came, and the church was born. The Spirit baptized those believers, 120 of them, in the upper room. There was such a great noise, the sound of, of a violent wind, that people who had gathered from all over the world for the, feast of for, for the Feast of Pentecost, they were required three times a year. This was one of them. They came running to the house uh, where the believers were, and as the people gathered, each of them heard the wonders of God declared in their own language. Not a bad introduction to a sermon. They were amazed. They were perplexed. But many began to dismiss the event as the carousing of a bunch of drunk men. 
In fact, in your mind's eye, you can see them uh, turning to leave, shrugging their shoulders, whatever. It was the moment of truth. What would happen? Had they really received power? Did they really have what it took to be his witnesses? Could the presence of the Holy Spirit empower someone as pitiful as Peter? Maybe as pitiful as you. We read the story in Acts chapter 2. We celebrate the resurrection today. I want you to understand that our text is one of great victory for Peter and for you. The Holy Spirit came just as God promised as a result of the resurrection and the ascension. The church was established. I want you to understand that it has been here ever since. The first evangelistic message ever preached was delivered. And that small band of 120 grew by 3,000. Talk about church growth. 3,000 saved that day. This time, Peter seems to know what he's talking about. And the doubts about him are forever erased. No longer does he flee from his Lord. No longer does he deny. No longer is he a miserable failure. Rather, he delivers that first message to some of the same people before whom he had wilted. The night of Jesus' betrayal. From this point on, he plays a significant role in the church. (laughs) Peter's basilica is built We don't use his name in the same sentence with Judas. He's not a failure after all. He's a changed man, all because of the truth of the message, all because of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God in his life. And that can be true for you too. This morning I want to look at this first message of the Christian church because understand it is a perfect Easter message given by pitiful Peter himself. As we go through it, I want you to remember who Peter had been. And I want you to remember who Jesus made him. And I want you to be encouraged that you too have received the same spirit, the same resurrection power, the same message, the message of Passion Week, the life of Jesus, his death on Good Friday, his glorious resurrection on this day, on Easter Sunday. I do not care what a miserable failure you may have been. You have the same life-giving resurrection power to live a victorious Christian life. Listen, to turn this world upside down. We have before us today the words God used through Peter to save 3,000 people. It's the message of Easter, the message of the gospel of resurrection. The words of this sermon are actually quite long. Just put you on notice. They extend from 14, uh, uh, all the way to verse 41. We're going to start in verse 14. The outline looks like this. We're going to look briefly at Peter's explanation of Pentecost. We'll just read each section as we come to it. His explanation of Pentecost will look closely at his exaltation of Christ because that's what this day and every other is all about. And then we will see Peter's exhortation, his call to repentance, and I will call you to the same. Let's look at Peter's explanation of Pentecost briefly. Look at it. Let's read it. Verse 14 says this. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, Peter, loser Peter, go ahead and say it, loser Peter. Taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all 
mankind, all humanity, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see dreams, your old men shall uh, dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, and I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapors, vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, listen, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter uh, begins by dismissing the ridiculous claim that the disciples were drunk, pointing out it's only the third hour, that means nine o'clock in the morning, long, long enough in the day to get drunk. He explains that they, what they were witnessing was a fulfillment of a prophecy found in Joel chapter 2. This, Peter says, is a fulfillment of the promise of God to pour out His Spirit, to baptize people in the Spirit in these last days. I want you to understand the last days extend all the way from the ascension of Christ till His second coming. We're in the last days, ever and ever closer. I want to get bogged down on the interpretation of these verses. It's my opinion, opinion of many others, that verses 17 and 18 were fulfilled that day, the day of Pentecost, and continue to be fulfilled um, to the present day. He's still pouring out his spirit on those who believe. Verses 19 and 20, the so-called cosmic disturbances, moon to blood, all of that, are yet to be fulfilled. They will happen sometime in the future, right before the second coming of Christ. The important part for us today, in the interim, between this initial outpouring of the spirit and the return of Christ, for those who exercise faith, those who call on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. This, Peter says, is what is happening. It's not drunkenness, but a new covenant prophecy, uh, 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 an old covenant prophecy now being fulfilled in the new covenant. Having captured their attention, Peter then delivers his first evangelistic message. This is where we'll spend most of our time. We'll read the words of the sermon, verses 22, all the way through verse 36. Look at it with me. It's incredible. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. You know this. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's interesting. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say confidently to you regarding the patriarch David that he's dead. He died. He was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. It's true. I saw it just a couple months ago. And, and, and so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to see one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of what? Of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, listen, this is the conclusion. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know. I say, let all those in the house of God at Alliance know. For certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. I want to I say that with as much passion as I can muster. And he said at the beginning of his message that we are in the last days, the Jews would have expected that the Messiah would be on the scene. So, Peter says he, he is. He proclaims Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, him crucified, resurrected, and exalted. I want you to understand that Christ is the subject of Peter's message. You see, Peter gives us here the perfect gospel presentation. The person of Christ, the work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, and then he closes with a call to repentance. We didn't read that yet. A call to repentance. You can even hear James and John humming a few verses of Just As I Am in the background. Look at the key elements of this message. First, he points out in verse 22 that Jesus had authenticated himself through miracles, wonders, and signs that God performed through him. God the Father played a central role in the entire ministry of Jesus, to be clear. It is God who performed the miracles through Jesus. It is God who ultimately put Jesus to death. It is God who raised him from the dead. Jesus received the Spirit from the Father, and it is God who made him both Lord and Christ. Why do I make a big deal of that? Because we have this idea in our minds that we have a, 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 a God the Father sits in heaven, and he's really, really, really angry, and he doesn't like sin, to be clear. And he sits there with Thor's hammer waiting for you to step out of line so he can squash you. But Jesus finally stepped forward and said, oh, Father, don't be mad. I'll go die for their sins. Not true. I want you to understand that the triune God... Father, Son, and Spirit were all involved because of love in our salvation. Now, there could be no arguing the reality of Jesus' miracles. Notice he says, as you yourselves know. Many of the people listening. Remember, this is the Feast of Pentecost. They'd come from all over to include Galilee. Many of those uh, had been eyewitnesses to the miracles that Jesus had done. Some of them perhaps had been fed by him on the day he took five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000 5, men alone. Others had been, uh, seen him heal those who were sick. Perhaps they were the ones who had been healed. The paralyzed, the lame, the blind, the mute. Some had even seen Jesus raise the dead. And, and if they'd not seen it with their own eyes, there were enough credible witnesses standing right next to them such that, listen, the miracles could not be denied. Even those who opposed Jesus, the religious leadership, recognized the validity of his miracles and accused him of what? Of being empowered by Satan, meaning there could be no denying the supernatural power of these miracles. They happened. I suggest we can present people with that same truth today. People who reject the gospel must deal with the historical reality of Jesus. The miracles he performed are well attested. Then they did not try to deny it. It's only smart 21st century man that tries to deny it. Go back and say, it didn't never really happen. They never said that. It was, it was clear. And so the question is, what are you going to do about it? You can just dismiss him as a fraud? You can't. People were healed. People, people didn't come to him with an undefined pain in their lower backs and leave under the power of positive thinking, feeling better. Listen, shriveled hands 
were healed right before their very eyes. Lepers whose flesh was falling from their bodies were restored to perfect health. People who had never walked in their lives. Listen, talk about muscle atrophy. There were no muscles. They had never walked in their lives. Suddenly were leaping for joy. Eyes that had never seen were given sight. A man dead in the grave for four days was brought back to life to the utter amazement of all of those who watched. Lives were changed. There could be no sleight of hand tricks to produce these kinds of results. So, what are you going to do with Jesus? Miracles are well attested. No one then tried to deny them. You can try and deny them now and listen to those false scholars out there who say never, never, never happened. They didn't say that. Well attested. Even when Jesus brought Lazarus back to life and the Pharisees were told about it, they didn't deny it. They couldn't. There's Lazarus. They just plotted to kill him. So what is your response to this undeniable proof of his deity? You can choose to suppress it, to ignore it, but you cannot deny it. It happened. After affirming the person of Christ, verse 22, Peter points to the work of Christ, verse 23 to 32, starting with the cross in verse 23. Peter says, this man, they, his listeners, with the help of wicked men, he nailed to a cross. But notice, it's critically important, this was by God's design. His predetermined plan and foreknowledge that Jesus be put to death. You've got to understand this. It is not like God looked into the future and saw that Men would reject his son and thought, well, I guess I'll just make that part of the plan. No, the cross did not take him by surprise any more than sin in the Garden of Eden took him by surprise. It was all part of his eternal plan and decree. This is, this is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Would you listen? God created us with free will knowing we would use that will to sin and rebel against him, all the while knowing further, even planning, that the answer to our rebellion would be the death of his own son. He planned for it. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Why would he do that? because of his love for us and for his own glory. Romans chapter 8 even says that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. If Isaiah 53, that familiar passage, says that it pleased God, pleased God to crush or to bruise him. And yet, please notice the end of the verse, they were still responsible for their actions. This is paradoxical. God's glorious purpose stands as the necessary factor behind everything that happens to include the death of his son, but such that everything that happens is according to God's plan, but men are still culpable, still responsible for their actions because we are depraved. So let me ask you, can that truth, you put Jesus to death, can I preach that truth today? Yes. 
Peter later said in his first epistle, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Paul said in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. It is, I want to say this gently but firmly, it is your sin and mine that caused the death of Christ. We are responsible for Good Friday. But thankfully, Passion Week does not end on Friday. It was just the end of the beginning. The story goes on through this day. It goes on through Easter. You see, in this message, Peter does not leave Jesus dead hanging on a cross. The gospel is incomplete without, uh, uh, without the resurrection. If he'd remained dead, Paul will later write that we are still in our sins. We are still without hope. But he did not remain dead. This is an undeniable fact. You've got to deal with this. There was this man who did a lot of miracles, who was purported to be the Son of God, who was put to death. It is undeniable, was buried, and three days later he arose. What are you going to do with that? The reason that we can have forgiveness of sins is because he died for our sins and was raised again the third day. And so I proclaim his resurrection to you today. Peter did so very effectively verses 24 and following, look at it. Peter proclaimed Jesus' life in one verse, his death in one verse, and his resurrection in nine verses. I think it's important. And he states it as fact. God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter here, we, we kind of miss it in the English, but he's actually using an image with these words. It was impossible for death to hold him, and there's a picture he's painting, just as it is impossible for a pregnant woman not to give birth. That, that's a picture. Well, listen, when a woman comes full term, as I understand it, when a woman comes full term, that baby's coming out. That's the picture. Some years ago, Jen and I had some friends, Mike and Monica. Mike was in the Navy, so he was at sea when Monica gave birth to their first child, so Tana served as her Lamaze partner. Do we still call it Lamaze? Her, I, I don't know, Lamaze partner. When they went to the hospital... After Monica experienced some of those very first difficult contractions, she said, that's it, I've had enough, I'm not going to do this, and she literally tried to get off the bed to go home. <laughs> Tana had to explain to her, sweetie, it doesn't work that way. When, a, when an infant is ready to be born, there is nothing that you can do to keep it in. That's the picture. So too, when it, listen, when it came time for Christ's resurrection, there was nothing that death could do to keep its hold on him. The wicked courts of the day had condemned him to die and die he did, but a higher court overruled the sentence and live he did. To support the point, Peter then quotes a Psalm of David, Psalm 16 in prophetic fashion. Follow the logic. David said God would not allow him to remain in the grave. But was David speaking of himself or uh, someone else? Obviously someone else because David remains in the grave to this day. Yep, visit it, still there. But someone else was not abandoned to the grave. His body did not see decay. He was raised from the dead on the first Easter. And those present, that is the apostles, were witnesses of that fact. They saw it. 500 at one time. You've got to deal with that. You can't just deny it. He was dead. He's alive. What are you going to do with that? 
We can proclaim that because we have the reliable witness. Peter preached the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Now he turns to the exaltation of Christ in those last few verses. Having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, he received the Holy Spirit from the Father, whom he turn, in turn poured out um, on believers in Jerusalem. You'll remember that Jesus said the Holy Spirit could not come until he ascended to the Father. Here we see the reason is this. The Spirit was given to the Son by the Father, and then the Son gives the Spirit to whomever He calls to the present day. To support this point, Peter quotes another psalm of David, Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. He could not apply it to David, so it must be applied to Christ. It speaks of Christ's exaltation, the right hand of the Father. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand, so I'll make your enemies footstool under your feet. You may remember that Jesus quoted this very passage, applying it to himself in Mark chapter 12, which befuddled his listeners. He asked the question, how can the Messiah be both the son of David and his Lord? The answer, listen, this is the answer of all answers, the truth of all truths, because the Messiah is none other than God and man, fully God, fully man. That's how he could die for you. Having heard... Um, the gospel clearly presented the people were pierced to the heart. Look, Peter concludes his message. He did so with a statement that called then and now for a response. Therefore, he's saying this to you today. If you're seated in this room, he is saying this to you today. Therefore, let all the house of Israel be certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter was proclaiming to the Jews, Jesus is the Messiah. What are you going to do about it? They had missed him. They had missed him. Perhaps you've been in church your whole life and you have missed him. I am calling you to a response. What response? Look at it, verses 37 and following. And now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just like we did. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many of the words, he solemnly testified, kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Are you listening to what I'm saying? I'm saying this to you today. Be saved from this perverse generation. Have you read the news? Two hundred people today in churches in Sri Lanka killed because they're worshiping on Easter Sunday. So then those who received this word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. He presented this message, and they were pierced to the heart. Those who had pierced him were now themselves pierced. They asked Peter, what shall we do? Peter responded, well, you don't need to do anything. It's enough for you to know who Jesus is and what he did. That's not what he said. I am concerned that churches across our country are filled particularly on days like today with people who say, yeah, I know who Jesus is and I know what he did. That's not enough. You must respond to the message of the gospel. You must personally respond. I want to be clear. 
Paul will later write, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him, then you shall be saved. How do we do it? Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We understand that what, Jesus, uh, that what Peter is saying is this, repent, that is, turn from your sins. You cannot say, yeah, I'll take a little bit of Jesus and keep my sin. You can't do that. Repent, turn from your sins, and then as an outward expression of your faith in Christ, be baptized, all in the name of Jesus, recognizing that it is through him that we can find forgiveness of sins. A mere acknowledgement of the gospel without personally responding to it is not salvation. Peter said you must repent, you must be baptized, you must identify with Jesus. There can be no secret conversions. That's what baptism is about. It is proclaiming before people, I believe just like you believe. A week from today, we're going to have a baptism. Some of you have never been baptized. I don't understand that. We have somehow separated uh, salvation from baptism as if baptism is optional. Baptism is not optional. It doesn't make you a Christian. It shows that you, it, you're publicly proclaiming that you are one. If you have never been baptized, I am pleading with you, per Peter's word, repent and be baptized. In the name of Jesus Christ. Peter urged those who, res who responded in repentance to be baptized, then assured them that they too would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence and power of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not just, in other words, for a select few. It is for those who repent and believe, for all those whom the Lord our God will call. That is true for you today. I, I have tried to clean up my life. I've tried to be a good person. You can't. You need the indwelling, empowering presence of the Spirit of God. It will not make you perfect. It will make you forgiven and will set you on a trajectory toward Christ-likeness. I am asking you to receive Christ. Don't just, believe, don't, don't just know the facts of the gospel. I'm asking you to respond to the gospel. And I am saying that God will then change your life, just like it did Peter. History record that Peter was a loser. Quite the contrary. The truth of the gospel, the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit changed this man from brash, outspoken, broken, miserable failure to bold, articulate, redeemed, joyful follower of Jesus. Perfect? Oh, no. Read Galatians. Wasn't perfect, but he was a Christ follower. From the, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth who never seemed to know what he was saying to what many consider to be one of the best messages ever preached. The good news is Peter's life did not end in the Gospels because it would have ended in failure. The good news for us today, the story of our lives do not need to end in failure. You may look at your life as unredeemable, as disaster, as failure. Just the kind, listen, just the kind of person that Jesus specializes in redeeming through his resurrection. Peter would later write, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want you to understand this is what Easter is about. The living hope the living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which brings the salvation of our souls. I am praying for that for you.